Today we're continuing our sermon series called No Fear November. And it's kind of like no fear voting, no fear election, no fear politics this fall. And I'm looking forward to this. If you haven't listened to the first sermon in this series, I encourage you to go online and to listen to it. You can get it on the website. Uh, But the more I studied kind of the issues because uh, I try to study God's word and I try to get current on some political things that are going on, the more I studied those political things, the more I realized I am not an expert in politics. Politics is not my field of expertise at all. So I am coming to you as one who uh, is trying to focus on God's word and what God has to say to us. I'm going to give you some principles that I hope that you can take and apply to this season of life and that hopefully it'll give you a better understanding of what God is looking for uh, this November, what God is looking for not just out there, but more importantly in here, in your heart. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, preach your word, to share your word with your people. We thank you that you speak to us through the Bible, and we pray that uh, we would hear what you want us to hear. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now, chances are, not everyone here is a a Christian, but if you are a Christian and if you grew up Christian or you've been a Christian for a while, you might be feeling somewhat rejected, rejected by society, rejected by culture. And the Pew Research Center actually just did a study that affirms some of these feelings uh, in your heart, just kind of this general sense of rejection against Christianity by society. So I'm going to put up a graph. I know this will just thrill some of the engineers in the room. Uh, So just, (laughs) you can shiver if you want, you're just excited. Uh, But I want to explain this to you. So there's two studies done uh, by the Pew Research Center, one in 2007, one in 2014, really trying to figure out what Americans believe. If they align themselves with a religion or a faith system, what do they align themselves with? And in 2007, from 2007 to 2014, uh, people in America who defined themselves as Christians decreased from 78.4% to 70.6%. So that's a, that's a decrease of about 8 percentage points. So that's a pretty significant uh, decrease in a short period of time. And if you're wondering what Christians means, uh, that's a pretty broad definition. It's Protestants, so uh, Baptists, Congregationalists. It also includes Catholics. And then it would include um, some other branches that I wouldn't consider to be Christian, like Mormons or Jehovah Witness. But Protestant Christianity itself, it declined 4.8% percentage points to 46.5% of the population. So 46% of America say, I'm Protestant, or they know enough to give that answer in a survey. Now, among evangelicals, evangelicals over the same period decreased 0.9 percentage points, so pretty much one percentage point, uh, to 25.4%. So that means roughly One in every four Americans says, I'm an evangelical Christian. Now, during the same period, uh, 
faith among uh, kind of non-Christian faiths grew a little bit. It grew 1.2 percentage points to 5.9%. That's the green bar on the screen. You can, it did grow, but you can't really see it very well. So this includes people of Jewish faiths, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, all right, some sort of belief system. And then unaffiliated, so atheists, agnostics, or people that would say, I don't really believe anything, that grew uh, probably the most. It added 6.7 percentage points. Uh, It grew to 22.8%. So that's almost equal with evangelicals and kind of where evangelicals are. So if you've gotten a sense that culture or society is largely rejecting your views, there is some merit to that. Now, I do want to point out that it's still 70% of America that would call themselves some sort of Christian. That's still a huge percentage. But there is certainly a shift in culture, in society, and in government, and media, shifting away from Christian-held values. Now, one of the statistics I gave last week, it was from Amy Black, a professor of political science at Wheaton uh, College. She said that three out of four Christians tend to vote Republican, and two out of three non-Christians vote Democrat. And so as, as Christianity shrinks, there seems to be less of a voice, perhaps, in the public sphere. Our, our values and our ideas that we have at large held tend to decrease. We were the majority, and we're heading towards a minority. We were in a, a position of privilege, and now we're becoming unprivileged. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? What? As are we as, as Christians across America? How are you individually? How are we as a Christian organization, as a church body, what are we going to do about it? Now, last week we discussed several options. We discussed historic responses among Christians. Now, one of the historic responses is to abandon culture, kind of abandon ship and run away. If you want to hear more about that, and, and kind of list, you can listen to that sermon online. But we learned that ultimately Jesus calls us not to abandon culture, not to abandon our neighbors, not to run away, because if we do that, we're no longer able to love them and to reach out. Now, the other option is to fight back against culture, to try to, to regain our position of authority, of power. And I argued that ultimately that leads to more bruising. It leads to hurt relationships. It doesn't lead to success. It leads to a war. One of the things that I try to argue is that we should really be seeking to flourish and to uh, grow the culture. So not, not flight, not fight, but flourish. Showing genuine concern for others. Taking the time to get to know those around us and letting that impact how we view something like voting and politics. Now, Peter, he was one of Jesus' disciples. In the book of First Peter, he writes a portion of a letter and he has a similar message for his audience that he is writing to. See, a man named Peter was writing a letter to early Christians who were being rejected by culture. 
They were scattered. They were exiles. I brought a verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So the very first book, uh, the very first verse of this book of the Bible says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. See, the people Peter is writing to feel rejection. Perhaps they have literally been scattered. They are literally exiles, scattered all throughout kind of ancient Asia. Now, I brought a map to kind of show you the location so you have some idea. Uh, the area that he was writing to is right here. It's like a kind of a circuit. So you can line up some of those uh, with the verse Asia. It's historically right there. Now, this is modern-day Turkey. Right, So Paul, uh, Peter is writing to a real place, real people, and it's not just one city or one town or one region that's feeling this, but it's people all around the nation, <laughs> all around that region, different regions. They feel rejected. They're being persecuted. Now, <clears throat> they were experiencing various kinds of suffering, and you can, you can see, kind of, you can get a taste of it. If you read through the book of 1 Peter, it says they were uh, experiencing grief and trials. They apparently had harsh masters. Maybe some of them were servants, and their masters were looking down upon them for the faith. Christianity often spread among the lower classes. They were receiving abuse from pagans. (laughs) They were receiving insults. Maybe some of those things sound familiar to you. See, Peter wrote this letter at a time when people really needed to hear it. And the persecution uh, was about to get even worse, kind of in Rome. We talked about uh, Rome last week and Nero. See, Nero is about to kill a whole bunch of Christians in A.D. 64. So the question is, what is Peter's solution? Does he say to run away? Does he say to fight, to try to take back culture, to try to make friends with those people that are in power, to become politically authoritative? He doesn't say that message at all. Instead, Peter calls them to do something that doesn't make sense. He says, align yourself, align yourself with Christ, the corner stone. Come to Jesus. What's one of the first things he says in verse 4? He says, come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans. See, Jesus was rejected. Culture turned its back on him. Now, Later in verse 6, it calls, kind of scripture refers to to Christ, to his message as the corner stone, the precious corner stone. So what is a corner stone? Well, I tried to include a picture for you so you don't have to use your imagination. A cornerstone is in a building project. It goes on the foundation, and it's one of the first uh, stones to be laid. It is the first stone to be laid when you're building your wall. Right, so it would be in a corner, and it, its width, kind of uh, depth, uh, length would determine the width, depth, and height of the wall, kind of how, how much it could bear, how, how big it was. And so uh, 
Peter here is saying Christ is that cornerstone. He is the foundation for a building, for something that God is making that is beautiful. And notice what he also says. He says, you are living stones. So Christ is the living stone, and you are a living stone. So if you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of him, the message is still true to us today. Peter says, God is building a spiritual house. Now, does that refer to a home? Perhaps. In their image, they probably would have thought of the temple, a place of worship, a significant place. See, God uses his people to build his kingdom, to build his kind of temple where he resides. You ever heard that phrase, you know, the church isn't a building, it's people? (laughs) Well, maybe Peter would argue a little bit differently. He's saying, well, you actually are a stone, you're a living stone, and God is building something really beautiful. And God is using you. He's using me to build a home where all peoples who trust in God can come, where anyone who is rejected, anyone who has been uh, turned on by culture, they can always come to Christ Jesus. Now, if you feel rejected <laughs> this election season, if you feel like you know, society or your political party has turned its back on you, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to turn to Christ. And remember that he's the cornerstone and he is building something far greater than politics. He is building building his kingdom. It's a greater kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It won't rise and fall like all the kingdoms of the world. It will stand forever. And God wants to use you. He wants to use me. That should give us great encouragement. As elections come and go, Christ will never be moved. Praise God for that. And he wants to build his kingdom with people like you and me who are exiles, who are refugees, who are outcasts when it comes to this world. Maybe some of you have seen Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I saw it at a birthday party, and I don't think I was actually supposed to see it. I was kind of young, and it's kind of scary. (laughs) Disney movies. And there's a gypsy in it, her name's Esmeralda, and she sings a song. She sings a song called God Help the Outcasts. I'm not going to sing that song. I'm going to spare you more rejection. But one of the things she says is, God help my people. We look to you still. God help the outcasts where nobody will. See, we believe in a God who helps the outcasts, who helps those who have been rejected who says, come to my kingdom. My kingdom doesn't reject you. There's a way in through my son. But we welcome you. We welcome you home. Come to Christ. He was rejected too. So how do we come to him? Well, it's actually by remembering the rejection of Jesus. See, in Jesus' day, politics and religion were perfectly wed. Politics and religion were perfectly wed, and Jesus was actually rejected by the conservatives of his day and by the liberals of his day. He was rejected by the Pharisees. They were the conservatives. They held to God's law. They were strict, but they rejected him. And the Pharisees, well, they took a more liberal approach to interpreting the Old Testament, the Scriptures, 
And they didn't really care about Jesus either. And this ultimately was one of the reasons he was put to death. See, Jesus was put to death because he didn't fit a political mold. He didn't fit a religious mold. He came challenging the politics and the ideology, the religion of his day. Revealing the way to God is through him. And for that, we put Jesus to death. But there are three things Jesus did. He died, he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. And Jesus right now is seated on a throne. He's ruling, he's reigning, he is the king of kings. You know what that means? That means he's greater than any politician. (laughs) He has more authority than any government. Jesus' government exceeds all governments. And you can align yourself with him. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this king of kings, if you are feeling rejection or you're disappointed, well, come to him. It begins with a confession of repentance saying, I don't, I'm not worthy to stand in the presence of this king. He is perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly loving. I don't deserve to be in his presence He says, amen, I'll forgive you your sins, put your faith in me, and you can come and you can be a part of my kingdom. This is what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know Jesus. See, God takes our rejection through Christ Jesus and welcomes us into the family of God. Align yourself with Christ, the cornerstone. Now, I believe there's also another message in this passage, and it's this, don't align yourself with Egypt. Don't align yourself with Egypt. This is a principle that you can kind of take home and ponder and apply it to your life. Now, Egypt is any earthly power that puts itself before God. Now, many of you know we're in the New Testament today. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and where is there a reference to Egypt? Egypt is a nation that's talked about mostly in the Old Testament, right? We just went through uh, the book of Genesis. Right after that, there's a book called Exodus. It's all about the Exodus from Egypt. Well, if we look at verse 6, in your NIVs, you might see that it's like indented a little bit, that it looks a little bit strange from the rest of the text. This is a signal. It's a signal that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And in some of your Bibles, you might have a reference that will say, go and look up Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And that's where we get this verse. I'm going to put it on the screen. First, I'm going to read it one more time in in, uh, 1 Peter. And I'm going to read Isaiah, and I want you to notice the differences. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now it says in Isaiah, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Sure foundation, never be stricken with panic, never be put to shame. So a man named Isaiah, he was a prophet, and he was writing to an audience just like Peter. And his audience, uh, they were about to go through immense hardship. And he is actually writing to the leaders in Jerusalem, so Judea, kind of ancient Israel. And he's writing to those leaders because they have a problem. 
See, to the north of them is an ancient civilization known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bad people. They were a bad nation. They were known for putting hooks in the the nostrils of those they conquered and taking them away. They would skin them. They would do awful things to their prisoners if you didn't become one of their servants, if you didn't become one of their kind of uh, subjected states. But to the south, the option isn't that much great either. There's another nation. It's Egypt. Now, maybe you guys know the story of Egypt. The nation of Israel was in captivity there for 400 years, and they worshiped false gods. They worshiped demons. And so you don't really want to go south. You don't really want to go north. But both these nations are at odds with each other, and they're going to be in conflict. And so you have a choice. Can you, you can either align yourself with evil, evil Assyria, or you can align yourself with bad Egypt. See, the question is, how do you choose between the lesser of two evils. How do you choose between the lesser of two evils? Now, some of you hang out with youth on occasion. Today I got to hang out with some teenagers, Spigot River Cleanup, and one of the games we played as we were kind of waiting is a game called Would You Rather? Would You Rather? And it's kind of a silly game. It's a fun game. Uh, But one of the questions I asked them were, would you rather be a chicken or a cow? All right. And so you kind of have to wrestle with that. Well, if I'm a chicken, I have to lay an egg every day. You know, I might might end up in a KFC bucket. I don't really want that. But if I'm in a cow, you know, I might end up at Burger King and there's lots of flies. So which one do you choose? How about this question? Would you rather be in jail for 10 years or in a coma for 20 years? Well, 10 years in jail doesn't sound like much fun, but a coma, that's 20 years of your life. And this one is really tough. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? All right? (laughs) So that's 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. It's meant to kind of make, it's meant, I'm, I'm making a serious point here. It's meant to kind of make you laugh. See, but there's good news. You don't have to be a chicken. You don't have to be in a coma. You don't have to, to fight a really big duck. In God's kingdom, in God's world, there is always a third option. You don't have to play the game. What does it say in verse 7? It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It says, you can trust in him. You can trust in a stone that will never be shaken. It will never be put to shame. This was the same message Isaiah gave to his people 700 years before the birth of Christ. You can trust in God. It's the same message Peter gives his people when they are being rejected by culture just after kind of the time of Jesus. It's the same message we need to hear tonight. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Whatever that may be, put your trust in Christ Jesus because he won't disappoint. See, what Israel did is they put their trust first in Assyria and then in Egypt, and that didn't work out too well. And when Assyria came to attack Israel, Egypt didn't show up. Egypt didn't meet their expectations. Egypt wasn't a good ally. But you know who did show up? God. 
God showed up. He defended his nation, Israel. See, the option is sure. Trust in the cornerstone. Trust in that which some builders choose to reject. See, we can build other kingdoms. We can build other projects, other thoughts, other ideologies. But ultimately, the one that matters is the kingdom of God. Don't align yourself with Egypt. Align yourself with Christ, the cornerstone. By aligning ourselves with Christ, we free ourselves to do good. This is kind of where our passage heads in verses 9 through 10. So at the beginning of this passage, Peter describes the early believers as priests. He says, you're holy priests. And at the end, he says, you're royal priests. So what do priests do? If I'm a believer, then I'm a priest. Well, what does that mean? Well, priests do two things. They worship and they mediate. Priests worship. What does that mean? (laughs) Andy, you preached the sermon before I ever got up. (laughs) See, because I was thinking about spiritual sacrifices. We're called to make spiritual sacrifices. And what does that mean? Well, Romans 12, verse 1 says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is literally what I wrote. This can be your family, your job, your identity, your sexuality, your friendships, your whole being. This is what God wants. What can you offer God? You can offer God your politics. You can offer God your ideology. You can offer God your patriotism, your vote. You can offer God your pride, your humility. You can offer God everything because he wants everything. See, ultimately what God is interested in is far better than politics. It is far better than a checkbox. Those things are important, don't get me wrong, but what God cares about most is the most precious thing. He calls it a precious living stone. God cares about you. God God wants you. He wants me. He wants his people. Are we distracted with these other things that, that do matter, but ultimately, is he our first? Do we put God's before him? Do we love God the most? Do we seek to honor him? See, priests worship. You can worship here on a Saturday at 5, and I hope if you're a first-time guest, you do next week too. But ultimately, God wants our everyday worship. He wants our whole being worship. By aligning ourselves with Christ, we free ourselves to do good. And one of the things we free ourselves to do is worship. Since no no longer when I go to do these things that are sometimes hard, like voting, no longer do I feel like I'm at war, but I'm just simply offering a gift of worship, saying, God, I trust you no matter what. And what I do here today is just an offering of worship to you. I know that I am not going to do it perfectly, But that doesn't matter because your son lived a perfect life on my behalf. It's his record, not my voting record, that really matters. It's the record of Jesus and what he did for us. Second, what do priests do? They mediate. It's kind of a fancy word. What is a mediator? A mediator is someone who facilitates a relationship between two parties. Sometimes these parties are at odds. Because of the fall, because of the garden, all people were at odds with God. But Jesus came as the great mediator to figure out the relationship. 
to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can know God and have a relationship with him. And it's our job as priests to go out and to intercede for others to God. Now, this is a hard thing to do because it means caring about those around us. It means caring for the culture. It means caring for those that might be rejecting God. See, it doesn't mean running away. We believe in a great high priest who came and lived among us, right? He didn't run away from us. He ran to us. So how can we be mediating, be facilitating the presence of God through this season? It's a challenging question, but one we need to ask. When someone at work barks out a political opinion, and you just disagree when your blood pressure starts to rise, maybe just pause and say a prayer underneath your breath. Say, God, you love them. (laughs) Have your way. You care for them. Don't get riled up. We have a God who's perfectly good, and he knows what's best this season. So priests, what do they do? They mediate. They mediate the presence of God. See, we're not here to fight. We're not here to run away. We're not here to fight, flight. We're here to what? Flourish. To seek the genuine welfare of those around us. The ultimate welfare of anyone depends on their relationship with God. We want to do whatever we can to try to connect them to God, to introduce them to Jesus. It's through Jesus that we receive eternal life, that we become a part of that big kingdom. By aligning ourselves with Christ, we free ourselves to do good. We worship, we mediate. Align yourself with Christ, the cornerstone. Emma Daniel Gray, most of you don't know that name. I just learned about that name this week. She died uh, in 2009 at the age of 95. She's not famous for anything. (laughs) But for 24 years, she was a woman who cleaned the most important office in the U.S., the office of the United States president. She served six presidents until she retired in 1979. Her official title was chairwoman. She got that from cleaning the president's chair. Now, she was a devout Christian, and so whenever she would go in and clean the president's chair, whether it was Democrat or Republican, she would stand over the president's chair, she would put her hand on on the chair, and she would clean it, but then she would also pray for the president. She would pray for wisdom, for blessing and for safety. Didn't matter if she agreed with that president or not. Wisdom, blessing, and safety. We live in a time where society and culture is rejecting the beliefs of Christianity. Seems like it's happened a lot recently. And it's tempting to think if we can just get the right person in power, we'll be okay. But my friends, we already have the right person in power. We have Christ Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is sitting on the throne and he has perfect authority. He's not calling us to run away. He's not calling us to fight back. He's calling us to love others, to love our neighbors, to worship him and seeking to mediate his presence 
during this season. Align yourself with Christ, the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, and what he did for us. He did everything for us, Lord. And so even as we make mistakes, even as we blow it, whether it's in relationship, whether it's in things like voting, Lord, when we blow it, we know that Christ never did. His life covers ours. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We give you this offering. It's an offering of finances. We give it as an act of worship. Also, as we sing, we give that as an act of worship, too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.